That was great singing, especially when you have the, the keys choir just down here on the left. Uh, boys, you better start talking about making a choir, I think. That was great. A taste of heaven, right? So we continue from where we were this morning. Matthew 26. This evening's sermon uh, title is this, No Greater Betrayal. This morning we looked at how there was no greater battle. Tonight it's no greater betrayal. And really we need to take a step back from where we were this morning to track Judas's uh, steps through this Passion Week. So we're going to read Matthew 26, uh, verse 14 uh, to 16. And then we'll jump across to verse 47. Uh, 3 to 56. So let's go to Matthew 26 and verse 14. And we'll read these words. This is God's word. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came at, came at one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. And that hour came. And that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to uh, to (coughs) capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. Let's just pray together, shall we? Lord, we we come together this evening... Uh, We're thankful hearts about what you have shown and taught us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you answered prayer in many ways this morning as we studied your word together as a family. And we ask now again that you will help us by your spirit as we look at the account and the steps uh, of Judas. Lord, that this word which we know is living may live in our hearts and may penetrate our hearts and speak to us tonight in maybe ways which it hasn't done. 
So Lord, we ask that you will undertake now and that everything that we do in these moments will bring honor and glory to your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Judas could not have thought or spoke or acted without Jesus knowing. He couldn't have thought, spoke, or acted without Christ knowing. None of his movements <clears throat> during, the passion, <clears throat> during the Passion Week were out of reach or out of sight of Jesus. We saw this truth, didn't we, play out last week as Judas works behind the scenes his plan of betrayal Jesus already knows. He knows where he is, when he is, and he, uh, he, he knows all these plans, and therefore his plans are also in place to, to not allow Judas to, to almost take Jesus to the cross. Jesus will go in his own time. And this tells us, doesn't it, and shows us so clearly as we walk through Scripture from front to back, but particularly in this week, as we walk through this Easter uh, week, this Passion Week, we see so clearly that Jesus is in command. He's in command. He's in control of the situation. You see, the impending agony which is coming that next morning, or that same morning, did not dampen his divine nature. You know, I think for us, if, as I, as I alluded to this morning, if that impending agony was ours, and if you think of maybe a moment in your life where you're under extreme pressure and stress, you do not think straight. Reasoning often is out of the window, and it is hard in those trials to think straight. You're very clouded in your mind. But here, with Jesus, with this uh, uh, trial and, and mocking and scorning and being smitten by God and being forsaken by his Father, although it was literally coming to him, he still remained in control of the situation, in charge. And firstly, what I want to highlight this evening as we look at Judas' walk and his actions and his, uh, his footsteps through this week, I want to see this, that he was committed. He was committed. In verse 14 to 16 of Matthew 26, we see that. Let's just read those words together again. He says this, Then one of the twelve, whose, na- whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas went to the chief priests and asked a weighted question. He, his question, funny enough if you read it, it assumed that he would be paid. Or would be reimbursed in some way for the information of Jesus' location. There's an assumption, isn't there, from Judas? That if I go here... And tell about the man who they are looking for. 
then they will reimburse me. And therefore, he, he asks his question in a way where that would be their answer. So we know from Matthew's account that they gave him 30 pieces of silver for this information. And now Judas was completely committed. He was completely committed. That money, uh, we're unsure from all of the accounts whether it was literally given to him in that moment, although it would seem that in Matthew. In the other accounts, it, it, it would allude to the fact that there is promise to him. Regardless, they had made a deal. The deal was done. And he was committed to betraying Jesus, to giving up his location and to finding an opportunity to betray him. And on that point, I want you to see this in verse 16. You see, in verse 16 it says, And from that moment he sought. From that very moment he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. He did not postpone his search. He did not leave that place and go, I wonder whether I should have done that. His intention always was to go and, and with his greed in, in place, take of that money, and from that very moment when he left that temple, he was seeking an opportunity to uh, disobey, disown, and find an opportunity for the, the chief priests and the elders to capture him, to capture Jesus. And to me this says... Uh, he was driven. Just think about this for a moment. What he is doing, yet he is driven to do it. He has a motivation by the way of money. Maybe even excited at the prospect that he would be the one to bring Jesus to the authorities and would gain potential status in, as the insider in capturing this so-called king that everyone was worshipping. That he would bring him down. Well, secondly, let's look at how, Jesus, uh, how Judas sorry, signaled. How Judas signaled. In uh, verses 47, we see this in 48. We see this uh, happening here. While Jesus was still speaking to the disciples in the garden. Now, just remember back a few hours from this morning. As he is telling them, rise, come on, let's go. In those moments, as he is having this dialogue with his disciples, Judas arrives. Judas arrives as they speak. And this great crowd who is following Judas. But notice this. The one thing that all four gospel writers say is that he was one of the twelve. Why do they put that? Judas, one of the twelve. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Why say this? Why mention this in this context? I think that they are trying to get across the enormity of his offense. That one of the twelve disciples, those who Jesus had chosen, one of those who followed him, 
through the three years of his ministry and saw all that he did in his miracles and in his teaching. Uh, yet he, one of the twelve, was doing this. This wasn't some random person from the public. This wasn't some public person who just thought, I know where Jesus is going to be. I'm going to tell the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law where he's going to be and take that money. This was Judas. One of the twelve. But going back to this crowd arriving with Judas while Jesus was speaking, tells us also that Jesus battled in prayer until the last possible moment. You see, he went and prayed and then he came back and found his disciples and he went and prayed a second time. That second prayer that we saw. And he came back to his disciples and then he went back and prayed again. And all the while he knew that Judas was coming. I think at a time he would have seen him probably with torches because it was in the middle of the night. Or maybe heard them as they came to the, to the garden. But I'm sure that way before that, as he battled in prayer through this hour in this evening, he knew the steps of this uh, betrayer and the crowd who were following And he knew how long he could pray for. And he took every opportunity, every moment to pray with his father before this event took place. Quite amazing, isn't it? Quite amazing. Jesus knew they were coming. He knew they were coming. Yet he continues to pray. But to the sign, let's get back to this signal, shall we? It is clear that Judas prearranged the signal. He prearranged it. Verse 48. Now the betrayer has given them a sign, the crowd, or the authorities anyway, those chief priests and the soldiers who would have been there. And the sign was this, that I will kiss the man. I will kiss Jesus. And Judas, I'm guessing it says this, when I do it, seize him. The one I will kiss is the man. Sees him. Sees him. It is clear that Judas prearranged the signal. He would kiss Jesus, Jesus, and by this, they would know who to arrest. It would have been dark. Let's just try and imagine this for a moment. In the middle of the night, it would have been dark. It would have been dark, and there would have been eleven men standing like silhouettes. In a garden. Can you see it? Can you put yourself there and in your mind? So, the kiss. Well, it was a sure sign, wasn't it? That this was Jesus. They didn't know, or they couldn't pick out Jesus out of 11 silhouettes. But Judas could have. He knew him. He knew his figure, he knew his voice, he knew uh, his stance and his standing, and he would have known the characteristics of the, the human of Christ. You know, all of those things that we have, you, we could probably know one another by the way we, we stand, or the way we talk, or the way we laugh, or, and the same applies. They're friends. 
So the kiss was a sure sign that this was Jesus. And so it comes to pass in verse 49. He came up to Jesus at once. He didn't hold back. He, he arrived in the garden and he walked up to Jesus. And at once he kissed him. He kissed him. And he said, greetings, rabbi. Do you remember that? Greetings, rabbi. Or using that term, rabbi. Didn't we look at it as we looked at the, the Passover meal last week? We saw that, didn't we? In verse 25 of this same chapter, he uses that word, rabbi, teacher. And yet again in verse 49, as we're looking at here, he did that. And having said those things, he kissed the Savior. He kissed the Savior. And in this very moment, Judas is giving the signal. And really the kiss is the seal of his agreement for the 30 pieces of silver. His job was done. I was thinking about this during the week. It's actually quite momentous, this moment, isn't it, for Judas? He'd been seeking an opportunity to to, to, uh, betray Jesus. And here it is, the pinnacle of it. All that he had thought and planned in, in the days gone past, or at least over the last 24 or 48 hours. And here it is, this momentous point where this kiss was the seal of the arrangement in which he had made. But it's more than that, isn't it? What is happening here? You know, that very moment when he sought to go to him and and kiss him wasn't just a a sign of a sealed agreement with the the leaders of that, that nation. But actually, it went deeper than that because... If you look back in, in to the habits and the rituals of Old Testament uh, of New Testament, sorry, it would have been known that a teacher and his disciple would have had a relationship where the teacher himself would have been the one who greeted the pupil. And never the other way around. So he would have, the teacher would have greeted his disciple by a kiss. But never the other way around. But here in these moments, Judas, the disciple, approaches Christ and he kisses him. And it shows, it shows that Judas is in his mind, above almost Christ. That this teacher-disciple relationship no longer exists almost for him. And Jesus responds in verse 50, Friend, do what you came to do. Or maybe in your translation, why are you here? That's an interesting translation, isn't it? Why are you here? He knew why he was here. So friend, do what you came to do is a much more straightforward and understandable statement, although both are correct. But here's the startling thing. He called him friend. 
called him friend. I think if we knew the heart of Judas and his schemes the way Jesus did, we wouldn't be calling him our friend, would we? But here it it has an ironic twist. His friendly act of a kiss mixed with his act which shows him to be far from friendly. It's quite an astonishing moment as these two to interact with one another. And as Judas acts in the way he did. So they lay hands on Jesus and they seized him. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? So they laid hands on Jesus and that wasn't just enough, but they seized him. What does that mean, seized, that word? Well, if you go back and look at the translations, it was more like they held him fast. There was no way that now they had him, they were letting him go. They were, taking, they were taking no chances. They had taken long enough to get this Jesus under arrest. So they seized him. And this leads us on to how the disciples reacted. And this is all part of this account. So we're going to look at this. I know this takes us a little sidetrack from Judas' steps, but this is important. That in verse 51, we see that the way that they reacted, the way that they reacted, let's just read 51 together. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The disciple, who is unnamed in Matthew, however, is named in John as Peter. We shouldn't be surprised at that, should we? we know anything about Peter, well, he reacted violently to all that he had seen. And I'm not surprised at that either, are you? As they see this exchange of Jesus and Judas and this great crowd and this atmosphere there at this moment, and Peter just reacts with violence to all that he had seen and heard. His uh, Jesus, his friend, and the one who he so-called would die for before he denies of him. He has just been seized and is about to be taken away. So he, he draws his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest. Funny enough, in Matthew, it's another unnamed person. We have a lot of unnamed people, don't we, in Matthew? But we know that this high priest was, uh, high priest's servant was called Malchus. Malchus. He strikes Malchus. But if we want more detail, Luke, unsurprisingly, tells us that it was his right ear. See, you can tell Luke was a doctor, can't you? That was a right ear, you know, and all those details that you'd get from a doctor. It was his right ear and, and records and records that Jesus heals that man there and then. Dark, crowd, Judas, angry disciples, and Jesus in the middle. And yet he picks up that ear off the ground and, and heals that man instantaneously. A miracle right in front of their very eyes, in front of this crowd, in front of those who were standing behind him, his disciples, uh, his followers. And two questions that should be raised in our minds are, why did the disciples have swords? I don't know whether the man here who raise that question with me is, that, is he here tonight 
There's a gentleman in this church asked me this question. Why do they have swords? Second question, why did he cut his ear off? Well, answer one to question one is this. Well, uh, the disciples and, and Jesus lived under great threat. Great threat. This was a means of deterrent or even a weapon to defend with, I think. You know, that crowd that cried out to the praises of Jesus coming into that city soon turned. And there were those like the priests and the elders and soldiers who were looking for Jesus. So it was only natural that they would have some sort of weapon to protect themselves. And the answer to question two, why did they cut his ear off? Well, I don't think he was intentional in slicing off the ear. Peter was not a skilled swordsman. Um, Let's get more practical. The light was poor. It was dark. Couldn't really see. There was adrenaline in, in the air. And for Peter... Uh, an overwhelming sense that he needed to deliver his master from the hands of the temple police. So he just takes his sword out and, and swings it and it takes off the ear of the servant. Don't think it was any more than that. I think that's the reasons. And from this, uh, from Peter's actions, we see that Jesus was rebuked. Uh, Jesus rebuked Peter, sorry. He turns to Peter in uh, verse 52 to 54 and he says these words to him in these very moments. Put your sword back in its place. For all who take of the sword will perish by the sword. And this is just stunning here if we read these words. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Peter is commanded to put the sword back into its place because all who take the sword will perish by the sword. What Jesus is saying is that out of uh, what Peter has done is, is really just out of character for him. It's, it's totally out of his character or of any of the disciples. Peter isn't, a sword, Peter isn't a swordsman. He is a follower of, of the Prince of Peace. So let the swordsman die by the swords, but not those who serve the Prince of Peace. But then Jesus says something, as we've said, just remarkable in rebuke to Pete, Peter's knee-jerk reaction. And the challenge given to Peter here is, is, is quite unbelievable, really, because he said, do you not understand that I could just cry out? I could call upon the angelic beings to come to be my aid and to help me in this very moment. Jesus tells them that he could call upon his father and 12 legions of angels would come. Now, let me just put this into context to see how just incredible this moment is as he says these words. 
Because a legion, if we know anything about a legion, consisted of 12,000 foot soldiers. So it doesn't take a genius to work out what 12,000 times 12 is. It's 144,000 men. In that very moment of arrest, as Jesus is captured and being held on this side by the, by the police of the temple and as the disciples are looking on at this, Jesus says these very words. I could have called on these hundreds of thousands of men to come. And once again, when Jesus seems utterly helpless, he still remains in control. That's what it's saying to the disciples. He's saying, look, don't worry. Put your swords away. Calm down. All of this is happening to fulfill what was prophesied hundreds of years before. If I wanted out of this situation, if I wanted freedom and away from here, out of the hands and the arrest of of this crowd, then I would just call upon these angels and they would appear in a moment. And this 144,000 strong army would stand and would, would make that crowd there, I believe, who were coming to Jesus just look so puny and insignificant in comparison. Jesus was in control. He had the means to, to keep him from the cross. He had the means to keep him from the cross. But how would the scriptures be fulfilled? This is how it must be. And then in verse 55 we see Jesus questioned the crowds. He questioned the crowd. Verse 55. And at that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but all that has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The focus is now off Peter and the disciples, and it is refocused on the crowd. Jesus asked the crowd, Why have you come at me with swords and clubs as if I am some sort of robber. Day after day, which is an interesting phrase, meaning that he was at, that te- he was at the, 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 the synagogue and the temple daily. It was a, a habit, a good habit for him. And this is his, in his attending of that temple, there was, there was, So much opportunity for them to arrest him there. Why did they not arrest him there? If it is justice you are looking, then you could have arrested me in public. That's what he's saying. If I am a robber, which you say I am, then seize me in public and let the people see that you brought me to justice. I believe the reason they didn't do that is because they were fearful of the reaction of the people. Didn't know how those uh, Israelites and those Jews would react to this. 
Jesus is the king they want. Think of Palm Sunday and the entrance into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The authorities were scared. They just didn't know how those crowds would react. So they treated him like a robber. One who hides in the night by capturing him in the darkness of the night in Gethsemane. By now we should know the penultimate phrase from Jesus in verse 56. We see it, don't we, time and time again. How many times have we, have we read this over the last number of weeks? That this has to happen in order for him uh, to fulfill the scriptures. They had arrested him where? And in a way, they wanted to. However, they did not realize that it was predetermined like this. They thought they had captured him in a great way, in the darkness of the night in the garden. But Jesus knew that this is the way it had to be. It was prophesied many, many years before. Isaiah 53 and 12 says, He was numbered with the transgressors, with the robbers, with those two men who hung on the cross beside him, which we will see in a number of weeks. He was seen as and treated as one of those. So that scripture will be fulfilled. And as we finish tonight, I want us to think back to the disciples who are standing, taking in all that they have seen. They did not realize until now the extremes that their brother Judas had gone to, which has led to Jesus being seized by the authorities, that he had led this posse up to the very spot where Jesus was. Secondly, they had just witnessed Peter's unsuccessful attempt at freeing Jesus from bondage. Thirdly, they had witnessed a miracle as Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Fourthly, they had just witnessed Jesus rebuking Peter and helping them to understand that he is never helpless when hundreds and thousands of angels are at his disposal. Fifthly, they just witnessed Jesus reasoning with the crowd calmly. They just witnessed Jesus calmly reasoning with this crowd about his arrest and its timing. And sixthly, they had just heard that all that had happened up to this point was fulfillment. Was fulfillment. Not failure. So how would you feel if you were there? The dawning of so many things all at once. Overwhelmed? That there was no more you could do? Why am I here? I'm not sure how they felt, but we know how they responded. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus left with Judas and the crowd. This is significant, isn't it? 
Not one of his intimate followers was prepared to suffer alongside him. Jesus' statement in verse 31 of this same chapter was fulfilled. The disciples preferred comfort over death and denial. That was the reality. We will die before we deny you, but actually we prefer comfort. The temptation which Jesus had warned them to battle in prayer just a few moments ago had come to pass and they lost. The test that came to them, they failed. Well, what's the lesson tonight? Well, for me, and I pray for you this evening as we read these words, it is this, that foolish and wicked men can never overthrow the purposes of God. In our foolishness, in our wickedness, we can never overthrow the purpose of God. Jesus walking into the darkest of hours on his own with no one beside him was the way it was supposed to be. This is what was always going to happen. But know this for sure, whatever the situation looks like, Jesus is in control. He is in command no matter what. When we face uncertain days, trials and temptations and whatever life and this world will throw at us, may these moments in the garden and the accumulation of this morning's sermon and tonight's sermon may bring comfort to each one of us in these days as we walk in to our Gethsemane. I pray that God will help us as we do that by his word. And by his spirit. Let's sing together then. As we close. Beneath. The cross of Jesus. I find. A place to stand. And wonder. At such mercy. That calls me. As I am. Let's stand.